Welcome to Positioning 365 Beyond Seating. I'm Marianne Girardi, your host. I'm a physical therapist and the clinical education specialist here at Ultimate Medical. Today, my co-host is Dane Gillespie, multimedia specialist at Ultimate Medical. Our guest today is Doug Levine, physical therapist. Today, we'll be talking about Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, including standing and other therapy interventions. We also got into some interesting topics, including Duchenne's muscular dystrophy around the world. Doug is a PT from Austin, Texas. He is a member of our clinical advisory board. He's been a physical therapist since 1997 and has primarily focused on pediatrics. Since starting Growing Places Therapy in 2006, he and his company have served over 600 children and their families, providing pediatric physical, occupational, and speech therapies in homeschool and daycare settings. He's provided education trainings with Cure Duchenne in the area of Duchenne's muscular dystrophy for therapists and families here in the U.S. and internationally. Welcome, Doug. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. So, Doug, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Like you said, I'm a physical therapist in Austin, Texas, and I have a very work setting. So a couple of days a week, I see kids in the home for therapy. So I actually go out to them. Two days a week, I'm a school therapist. I also help run the muscular dystrophy clinic here in Austin, Texas. I volunteered at MDA summer camp, and I actually also do clinical education for Cure Duchenne's. I just say all this just to say that I, I work in a variety of settings, and so I get the opportunity to work with kids in the schools, in the homes, in the clinic, lots of different areas. Could you tell us a little bit more about Cure Duchenne? Cure Duchenne is a nonprofit advocacy organization for Duchenne. Their ultimate mission and their ultimate goal is kind of in their name is to find a cure for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It was started by Deborah and Paul Miller almost 20 years ago. Their son, Hawken, was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And at the time that he was diagnosed back then, there really wasn't a whole lot out there for them. They were searching for information. The doctors basically said, we don't really have a whole lot for you. Take your son home, love him, and try to give him the best life possible. For Deborah and Paul, that wasn't enough. They wanted other people to not go through what they did. So they've been trying to raise awareness, raise funds for research, educate families, educate therapists, and just try to have the general public more knowledgeable about Duchenne muscular dystrophy. I have the privilege of working with them, and I, I love teaching, and I love showing therapists and families how to better improve the quality of care, so it's a good fit for me. Are they located in Texas? It's a national organization, but it's really international, so we travel around to different cities, provide education, kind of a silver lining of COVID and with everything that's kind of gone virtual, we've been able to address the needs of families and therapists in other countries. We've trained therapists in Uganda. We reach out to families in Italy and South Africa and just all over. The main work that we do is here in the United States. Um, the office is in California, but we really have a presence all over. Wow, it sounds like an amazing organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Duchenne's Muscular dystrophies in general are typically hallmarked by progressive muscle weakness. It's kind of a, a wide term. It kind of catches a, a bunch of different diagnoses. With Duchenne muscular dystrophy in, in particular, the boys, and it mostly affects boys, like 99.9% .9 affects boys. Some females are manifesting carriers. But the boys are typically either missing dystrophin or they have dystrophin in extremely low levels. 
And the dystrophin helps hold the muscle fiber together. And when we do activities, when we exercise, when we walk, when we do pretty much any time we use our muscles, the dystrophin kind of holds everything together, keeps the muscle from essentially falling apart from damaging itself. So if you're missing the dystrophin, the kids are a lot more susceptible to muscle damage. And over time, that muscle damage is not replaced with healthy muscle. It's replaced with scar tissue and fibrosis and fat. And so the kids tend to get weaker over time because of that. It also leaves them more susceptible to contractures as the muscle becomes less extensible. There are no females with Duchenne's? There are. So the boys are typically expressing the defect in the gene, whereas the females are typically carriers. You do have what's called manifesting carriers, where females that essentially have symptoms, it's a lot more rare because typically with the females, they have the healthy X chromosome that kind of overpowers the affected X chromosome. But in some cases, again, it's very small numbers. It seems like there's still not a handle on exactly the numbers of female manifesting carriers, but it it does exist. Do you feel that standing equipment is beneficial for children with muscular dystrophy? In my own experience and talking to families, talking to therapists as I'm doing the training, In most cases, overwhelmingly, yes. As the kids start to get weaker and they're walking less, they're standing less, they're starting to have contractures, they're losing all those benefits of standing. That's range of motion, strength, circulation, digestion, bone density, and even psychological and psychosocial benefits of standing, being at level with your peers, walking and keeping up. In our society, walking is sort of for better or worse, is, is kind of considered normal. That's how it's viewed by the general public. As the kids are walking less, there's the stigma associated with it. So with the standing, they're able to receive a lot of those benefits that, that I just talked about that tend to go away. I think it's extremely helpful as the disease kind of progresses. Who do you feel should use standing equipment and when should they start? Looking at the Duchenne population, I feel like it's it's One of the biggest things I tell parents all the time is we want to try to stay ahead of the problems. There's going to be weakness. There's going to be contractures. We know this from the natural history of Duchenne. So if we can stay ahead, we we don't want to wait until there's already contractures. We don't want to wait until they're not walking or not standing at all. There's not a typical age that I say, and there's a lot of variability with muscular dystrophy and especially with Duchenne. So you get some kids that stop walking at eight years old. You get some kids that stop walking at 16 years old. It's really a matter of when we start to see that functional decline, when we're seeing standing and walking is becoming more of a struggle, that's when I'll typically start implementing the standing program. It's not always when they're not walking at all, but um, typically it supplements that the walking or standing that they're doing, but it just kind of offsets the decrease in that activity. Do you find using standards is accepted by the children? That's a good question. Most of the time, yes. There is also a fairly high degree of cognitive issues. About a third of the cases with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, there's OCD or ADHD or cognitive issues. And sometimes implementing that standing program could be difficult. It's just hard for the parents or the therapist to get the kids to do it. 
I don't force it. I don't want it to be a really negative activity. Sometimes, like anything, it takes a little bit of working into it to kind of get buy-in or acceptance from the, the child or the parents. So sometimes we'll even start with five or 10 minutes at a time and work our way up. But another thing in terms of acceptance by the parents, I try to be really transparent with them. I try to explain to them what's involved in a standing program because I don't want them to have this big piece of equipment that takes up some space and I'm asking them to do yet another thing on top of stretching and the schoolwork and all this other stuff. I don't want them to implement this program and then find out it's too much or it's more than they thought. I really try to help step the parents through it too and that way it gets better acceptance from the families too. So what are your general goals for the standing program? So with Duchenne, it's varied. You know, sometimes it's maintaining, sometimes it's improving, and sometimes it's just slowing down the progression of the disease. So with all of those things, with range of motion, with strengthening, with bone density and circulation, those are all of my goals, but sometimes it's improving those things. Sometimes it's just maintaining where we are. If there's already, like, let's say, I want to implement a standing program and there's already a little bit of a knee flexion contracture, I might not be able to undo that contracture, but I want to keep it from getting worse so that we can keep doing the standing so that the families can position the kids well in the wheelchair so that they can keep walking. So it's all of those factors, the circulation, digestion, range of motion, but really looking at it from the individualized perspective in terms of maintaining or or improving. I've read that because of the steroid use that they have issues with bone mineral density and fractures. Have you found that standing helps? I have. It's hard to say. I mean, there's not a tremendous amount of research on the bone density side. I've seen where we've implemented a standing program and over time they've they've gone back and had either x-rays or DEXA scans and there has been an improvement, but a lot of times there's other variabilities in there. So they might be on calcium supplements or bone density medication. So it's sometimes hard to say if it was this thing or if it was that thing that helped improve the bone density, it seems to be a more of a a multifaceted approach in terms of all of those things and there has been an improvement. But I think what generally improves bone density is weight bearing. And with the standing program, you're getting weight bearing. So I think the general knowledge or the general consensus is that it does help improve. It's just hard to say how much of it is due to the standing program. Now, does standing take place of your regular therapy or is it an addition to? No, it's it really is an addition to. Initially, as part of the therapy, I might be doing a lot of training with the family, making sure that the, the child is positioned well, making sure that the family knows how to get the child in and out of the stander safely, making sure that they're comfortable, making sure that they know that the family knows how to use the stander, how to adjust everything. Standards have really come a long way, and there's so much adjustability now. It used to just be kind of one or two things were adjustable. Now, almost every component on there is adjustable. So I want to make sure that they know how to do that as well. But once they're kind of set up and the families know what to do, then I try not to take the therapy time in terms of doing the standard. I I really try to stress to the families to 
to try to make it part of the regular day. So maybe while they're having mealtime or maybe while the, the child is doing a school activity, homework or watching a, a movie or something um, on TV. So just trying to incorporate it into to their everyday activity. Have you seen it make a difference in range of motion and contracture development? I have, but it's typically really slow going. I mean, you're battling a disease that one of the biggest hallmarks of it is tightness. And so I have seen an improvement slowly over the long term. But again, if the family is using the stander on a regular basis, they're typically stretching on a regular basis. They're typically using night splints on a regular basis. I, I think, again, it's that you know, using the stander as part of a, a multifaceted approach to care for the child, it's hard to know which one thing is doing more, but it has seemed to make a difference. Those that are using the stander regularly, in my experience, tend to have less contractures. Can you describe a typical standing program for an individual with Duchenne's, including when you would decide to stop or modify the program? Typical is so tough. Again, you know, there's a lot of variability, but I generally want to limit the standing to about 30 or 45 minutes at a time. You know, any more than that, it's a long time for these kids to be standing in, in any one position, and it tends to get a little bit uncomfortable for them. So I try to incorporate more frequency for a little bit less time as opposed to, you know, one long session of an hour and a half. If it's possible, we try to incorporate it every day or even a couple of times a day. So I encourage the, the families, if the child's going to school, seeing if there's a time that we can implement the standing program at school as well. So maybe they can do it one time at school for 30 or 40 minutes, and maybe they can do it when they come home or in the evening, again, for 30 or 40 minutes. When we're first standing, implementing the standing program again, we usually start for a shorter period of time, maybe just five or 10 minutes to get the child used to what's going on and used to the, the new activity. It's really, for a lot of these families, it's hard to incorporate all of the things that's being asked of them. So, you know, they're, they're being asked to do schoolwork with the child. They're being asked to do OT. They're being asked to do PT. And many times, speech therapy, if there are sensory-related things or ADHD, being asked to do activities for that. So it can get really overwhelming for the families. I really don't want it to be an extra burden. I don't want the families to feel negativity if they if they miss a day or they can't implement it every single day. So I really try to work within reality. You know, there, we have families that are single parents, other siblings, both parents are working. It's just a lot to incorporate. So I try to work within the reality of what the, the caregivers can sustain over a long period of time. I don't want them to be all gung-ho and doing it two or three times a day. And then after a month, they're just, I've had it. I'm burnt out. I, I'm not going to do this anymore. If you've had children who've stopped standing, do you notice any changes or any effects from the stopping of the standing program? Do you ever restart one? Typically, the reasons for stopping the standing program, I mean, there, there could be all different reasons, but typically the reasons are contractures. That's probably the most common reason. With those families that are doing it on a regular basis, 
there comes a time where maybe we get plantar flexion or supination contractures, knee flexion contractures, and we just can't safely or comfortably get the child in there. So I've had families that are, they, they want to continue the standing program, but it's just not safe or comfortable. Usually with those kids, I will see a slow increase in the contractures, most notably with the feet supination and the knee flexion contractures. Will I ever start one again? It's rare because of the reasons that we had to stop it or the reasons that we can't continue it. So every once in a while, if there's an orthopedic surgery to correct that, whether it's the knee flexion contracture or the supination, it's not common with the Duchenne population to receive those surgeries. But yeah. if they do, sometimes we can start that program up again, but it's, it's fairly rare. You know, really with the standing program, we're trying to prolong the standing and walking as much as is appropriate and is safe. But once it just gets to the point where it's difficult to do, it's hard It's hard to re-implement it. Do you feel that the standing programs are supported by the medical community, the physicians that work with your kids? Yeah, I, I think overall it is. I, I think especially if the physical therapist has shown that they have a good understanding of Duchenne and they work with this population on a somewhat regular basis. It seems like the physicians place a good amount of trust in us that we have an understanding in what we're trying to do with the standing program, that we know when to implement it and that when we know really when it's best to stop. So I, I think there's a good amount of buy-in and from the, the medical community and from the physicians in terms of using the standing program. As you said, standards have come such a long way and there's so many different types of standards. Do you have any preferences for the population? Definitely. What I use overwhelmingly more than anything else are the sit to stand type standards. Pretty much for the longest time, it was, I've kind of been doing this for a while. So for the longest time, we just had the supine standards or the prone standards. And if there's any type of knee flexion contracture, if there's any type of heel cord, a plantar flexion contracture, where we didn't have the ability to adjust the foot plate individually to accommodate for that, it was just difficult to do. It was not comfortable. You know, we were using the, the supine standers and there was a knee flexion contracture and we would have to put a good amount of, of pressure through the knees just to hold the child in place. And it just, honestly, Marianne, it was kind of a mess. And so it was difficult to do. So I think with the sit to stand stander, we're able to, to adjust and accommodate for where it's comfortable for the child. So we can kind of come up slowly and see where they can tolerate. And even if they're not able to verbalize or express those things to us, we can kind of watch their facial expressions or their body language, and we can stop the stander where it's comfortable and where it's okay for them. That seems to be the one that I use the most, and colleagues of mine that typically work in the Duchenne community, same thing for them. We now interrupt this podcast with a word from our sponsor. Tell me about your Easy Stand Evolve. I actually really liked it. I liked it a lot. I found it very easy to talk to people, not sitting down. I can tell that it really actually stretches my legs because throughout the day they get really stiff and stuff. I really like when I usually go in my standard. I'll usually go in it about two times a day. It's also just like with online school, instead of being like in bed all day, I usually fall back asleep 
and it's just easier to like move around in instead of like just sitting in one spot all day. Now back to the podcast. You mentioned comfort and pain a lot. Do the children experience pain when they're standing? Is it part of the progression? Yes and no. I I think any time that we're sitting for a long time, there's the possibility of pain. I mean, I I know I, I'm ambulatory. I, I know if I've taken a long road trip, if I've sat in the car just for three hours before I go to fill up with gas and I get out of the car, I'm I'm stiff, I'm a little bit sore. Our bodies are not designed to to generally be in in one position for long periods of time. So Assuming that there's not even an orthopedic reason for pain, I think just um, being in one position for a long period of time can elicit pain or soreness. So that's why sometimes we have to progress slowly with the standing program. And then certainly there are orthopedic issues that come into play, whether it's a mild supination contracture where they have the potential of putting a lot of weight or a lot of pressure on the, the lateral side of the foot on the fifth metatarsal. We need to be careful of that. Sometimes there's a lot of uh, weight gain issues with Duchenne, but we also get a number of the kids that um, that are really, uh, really thin. And the bony prominences uh, are, we just have to be careful about pressure, whether it's the knees or the feet. So I would say, and I, I, I don't know an exact number, but I would say in a good number of the kids that pain is is typically an issue whether we're trying to alleviate pain or we just need to be careful of it when in the stander. Do you think that using a supported standing program has any effect on scoliosis development? I would say that it does. One of the things research has shown is that with a Duchenne population that once the kids are no longer ambulatory and they're sitting for long periods of time that the incidence of scoliosis and the severity of scoliosis goes up dramatically. I mean that's that's just well documented. So I think if we can implement a standing program it it counteracts that that increased sitting time and it changes the the body mechanics of sitting, we're able to alleviate pressure, and we're, we're able to, through the different adjustability parts of the stander, we're able to kind of counteract some of that, those scoliotic forces. So if we're getting, you know, if their body just wants to um, rotate or laterally lean to one side, we can kind of gently kind of counteract that pressure. So I think I think indirectly just being in a standing position has the potential to slow down the scoliosis. Do you think standing has any impact on upper extremity function and being able to functionally attend to activities? I think it does. I think just being in a different position, it's not like it's going to from a physics standpoint, it's not that it's going to put their upper extremities in a different position or make it easier to do an activity, but overall it it puts the body in a different position, a standing position as opposed to sitting position. So it just gives them an opportunity to work their upper extremities in that different position. I've got some other questions. Okay. A little bit about where some of my questions are gonna come from here. My nephew has congenital muscular dystrophy. So I also wanna like kinda tie in those two. So you obviously have most of your experience with Duchenne's. 
Have you seen any standing programs work out with other types of muscular dystrophy? Yes, my experience has not really been as frequent with that. Most of the kids that I see have Duchenne muscular dystrophy, but really the standing program, the benefits of the standing program are not necessarily just, you know, unique to Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So use a standing program for kids with spina bifida, with cerebral palsy, with other types of muscular dystrophy, spinal muscular atrophy. So really when looking at who's appropriate for it or the benefits of it, they're fairly similar across the board. It's just a lot of it has to do with when do you implement it? When do you discontinue it? Things like that. So for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, you talked about improvements a lot, which is awesome to hear. Do you have any like specific stories? You don't have to include any names or anything of a case where you can really think of, you know, this this uh, this client, they really got better. Or a case where it made a positive impact? It's so difficult because of the progressive nature of the disease. It's kind of, you know, in the shotgun a- approach, what what I mean by the shotgun approach is that you know we're we're trying to implement lots of different things. So there's potentially steroids. There's diff, maybe they're on different medications. Maybe they're receiving physical therapy. Maybe they're utilizing a standing program. So there's a lot of things going on. But because of the progressive nature of the disease, it's hard. It, it's just really. I mean, that's a great question, but it's just really hard to say. It's kind of. I haven't had any dramatic results with Duchenne where, like, let's say there were significant tightness or contractures, and then we started utilizing a standing program, and then, wow, it made a huge difference. It was just sort of like, I really think that slowed things down more than anything. Yeah, and that makes sense to me, because obviously being familiar with muscular dystrophy in my nephew, I see the progressive nature of it. So that's where I was kind of getting at is I was like, whoa, if seeing actual improvement would be crazy. But yeah, so it's not really improvement as more it's slowing down the effects and trying to work with other things. I would say mostly yes. You know, sometimes so the difference between a contracture and tightness is, you know, contracture is the muscle is is kind of permanently shortened. Tightness is that the muscle's tight, but we can still get some range of motion from it. So those kids that maybe that there's tightness, but a contracture hasn't set in yet, then we can make a positive difference. But the disease is still kind of marching along. And so we might be able to make a positive difference and improve range of motion a little bit for a short period of time, but over time with the muscle damage and the weakness, there's still gonna be tightness where it's just overwhelmingly, we're trying to slow it down. What are some of the other things besides standing that you do to alleviate some of that tightness or just in general, some of the things that you do to help these kids? Yeah, so besides the standing, teaching the families or the caregivers range of motion, utilizing night bracing, most of the time that's a nighttime AFO to help maintain or improve range of motion, improve range of motion in the early stages while there's still some flexibility. 
sometimes nighttime races in terms of knee immobilizers or hand splints, things like that. A lot of it has to do with positioning as the kids are walking less and sitting more in the wheelchair. The positioning in the wheelchair becomes so important just in terms of minimizing scoliosis or utilizing leg rests, adjustable leg rests, things like that. It's just that that positioning part becomes a whole lot more important when they're non-ambulatory. Speaking firsthand, once again, my nephew just went through back surgery last year because we didn't think about positioning all the time. We were good with it, like when he was in the wheelchair and stuff like that. But at home, a lot of the times we would just have him or he would just be sitting on the ground and his neck would be to the side, you know, because he's got a pretty upper level case. So he doesn't have any control of his limbs or anything like that. So his neck would be off to the side and eventually that really messed with his spine, obviously. So I that makes sense. And honestly, Dane, I was just going to say, you know, even with I mean, I've had some families that have been amazing in terms of range of motion. They're doing stretching twice a day. They're positioning. They're doing the standard. And the kids still ended up with scoliosis or some sort of tightness. So sometimes despite, I mean, I really think that these interventions that we do make a difference, but sometimes just in the nature of that specific person's case, like maybe in the, the case of your nephew, sometimes despite all the great things that we do, we still run into those difficulties. What is like a good stretching regimen for someone with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy? Well, I think overall, the longer the time period of the stretching, the better, which is why I'm I'm typically in, in favor of nighttime braces because there's just a long, gradual stretch. The research, uh, there are very few things with Duchenne that research has has shown because of the rare disease status of it. But one thing that's been shown just in range of motion in general is that there needs to be at least six to eight hours of a stretch to affect a change on a muscle. Mm-hmm. So typically when parents are stretching using their hands, using manual technique, obviously there's not a six to eight hour stretch. So I think optimally that long-term stretch is better but I still think that there are benefits, even if the parents are doing it five or 10 minutes a day, there's still benefits to that. And my feeling is with a standing program, with stretching, again, you have to deal with the reality. And my feeling is always something is better than nothing. So if we can get five or 10 minutes of stretching, that's better than doing zero minutes of stretching. And Mm -hmm. I think there's benefits to the families and the caregivers having their hands on the child and being able to feel the muscles and kind of being able to to de- determine when there's been a change. You know, if if they don't have their hands on the child on a regular basis, they might not be able to feel when there's an increase in tightness or something's going on. So increased frequency, increased amount of time is is always best, but we we kind of work with what we're able to work with. Yeah, that makes sense. Marianne, you had a question? Yeah, Doug, do you ever find that contractions are actually helpful? I don't have a whole lot of experience with Duchenne's, but I've worked with a few. And whether the contracture helped the function or the function developed the contracture, I'm not sure. I'm thinking specifically like the anterior pelvic tilt and sitting. And that it seemed to help their balance, but... Yeah. Or is it because the contracture came, that's how they now balance? 
Yes, I think it's it's definitely the the latter. What they found is that the contracture doesn't happen first. The weakness happens first, and it's the body's response to that weakness that helps create stability. So in the case of lumbar lordosis, in the case of walking up on their toes, that plantar flexion contracture, there's weakness in the, the IT bands, there's weakness in the quads, there's weakness in the, the gastrox. And because of that weakness, the body has figured out basically how to manipulate itself to create stability. So there's a change because of the weakness. There's a change of center of gravity of of during ambulation of kind of throwing the child forward. So in response to that, they do the lumbar lordosis to kind of throw their their um, center of gravity backwards. And as as the as the disease progresses and there's changes in strength, the body is continually adapting. So the lordosis happens and then there's more weakness and the head comes forward. And so there's more weakness and then the shoulders are thrown backwards. So they're constantly, it's like a, this, this dance that the child does to maintain balance. And that happens in sitting too, you know? So it really is more of a function of weakness that the body has responded to. I read a couple of articles where there are some theories that the plantar flexion contractures and walking on toes is like you're saying, the body's trying to adapt for stability and it's actually to assist with knee weakness. Yes. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they've done functional gait analysis and EMG studies to see what, what muscles are firing. And that's what they found is that the weakness happens first. And so the body does these compensations in order to, to keep ambulating. And so we do need to be careful. And that's kind of a main reason why orthopedic surgery is like for the, the knees or the, the heel cords is not generally recommended or these aggressive, like like even using an AFO, we, we've dramatically come away from using the AFO during ambulation because what we found is that they need that compensation. They need to be up on their toes a little bit to counterbalance the weakness. But again, this is a constant dance because if there's too much plantar flexion, then it makes it that much harder to walk or it makes it that much more energy expending or it throws their balance even more. So in getting some range of motion back, like in the heel cords or the knees, it it helps make the walking maybe more efficient with, without making a dramatic change in the compensations that the child needs. When you get the plantar flexion contractures, it gets to a point where it just throws everything off. And is there a number or is it individual? Yeah, I think this is where our experience and our our expertise as a therapist in terms of gait analysis and functional analysis comes into play because it really is different for every kid. What I'm looking at with those type of things our safety and and really how much energy expenditure is happening. So it's really different for every kid. But if if I feel like there, you know, there's there's too much plantar flexion contracture that they're really at risk of falling, or they have been falling more. That's when I I may say we we really need to minimize the standing or walking. It's a difficult conversation 
to have with child to have with parents, but there's not a number like once we get to 26 degrees of plantar flexion, that's where, you know, I stop walking or I stop saying, let's do a stander. Um, it's just really, I'm looking at that whole functional picture and that safety picture and how difficult it is. So I, I think there are so many benefits to walking and standing and that's important, but if it's so much work, if the child is utilizing so much energy that they're exhausted and they're coming home from school at 2.30 and they're falling asleep, you know, that's a quality of life issue. We're trying to paint the whole picture of, of what all we need to do with this specific disease to help them, you know? And I think uh, recognizing when that line is, is really important too. Yeah, I I think, um, I, you know, with most issues and most disabilities, you're, you're really looking at the whole picture. But I think, um, especially with Duchenne, there is so much you can't really, whatever it is, even if it's the different disciplines like OT or PT or car cardiology, can't really look at it in in everybody's kind of like, you know, blinders. I'm just looking at it's so much a big picture because everything affects everything else. If they're having cardiac issues that affects their stamina and how much they're able to do and how much they're able to tolerate. So, you know, this is no different. We really need to look at the whole picture and what's going on. We now interrupt this podcast with a word from our sponsor. An easy stand is, it's just psychologically, it's a cool thing for us to use. Um, one of the first times I got into a standing frame, I was with somebody and immediately tears on her face, yeah. seeing me standing upright, and so like, that's the something I remember. And also too, getting up in the, the standing frame, um, it's weird, my body has more activation in it. Because right now it's like my trunk's not completely activating, but when I'm in the, the standing frame, my glutes activate, my trunk activate, my back extensors activate, and I feel better. I feel like I could breathe better. It's weird. There's something like my body just, it feels more natural, you know? And I think that's the one thing we're always searching for is to be more natural. And a standing frame is a nice stretch, you know? And it just gives you like, makes your body feel whole again too. First time I've seen it, it was like, it, it drew my attention right away. Like as soon as I turned the corner in the gym and I saw it, I was like, ooh, what's that, you know? Um, and then, you know, from that point on, I started using that as part of my daily routine. Now back to the podcast. Do you see or feel that there's an emotional component when these boys are no longer able to walk or stand independently, but then get to participate in an upright activity using a standing device? And there's the whole loss of that, which is of the standing and walking, which has a whole nother chapter or bucket of stuff that comes with it. But do you think the standard yeah. helps in that aspect or is it just another symbol of progression? It, it, that's a great question. I mean, the kind of from an emotional standpoint, the hardest part of this disease, the hardest stage of this disease for me and I think for the families and working with the families is this time where they're starting to really lose standing and ambulation. Again, it's such a hallmark in our society of, of normalization, right? Like being upright and standing and all of that. And so it's it's difficult. It's difficult for families, even though, even if they've had years to kind of, 
you know, plan for mentally that there's going to come a time where my child's not going to walk, it it still hits them like a like a brick wall. And so it's difficult. And so it it really depends on the families. For some, you they don't want to use a stander. It's it's a it's another piece of equipment. I mean, I've had families that just felt that way. It's another reminder. It's another piece of equipment. We're just okay. We're just going to kind of take things as they come. And there have been some families that have said, you know, I, I I think being upright, being in a standing position, both from a physical and a a mental standpoint, is important for my child. And so we're going to keep doing that for as long as possible. But it's tough. I mean, this is a tough. This is a really tough disease, and this is a really tough stage of the disease where we're using a stander where a lot of these standing and walking things that the kids have been doing are are beginning to fail. I think both of those themes are common with other progressive conditions too. It's just it's Absolutely. and you're you're right. The society puts a huge positive aspect of being able to stand and walk and I've read studies where being bent or seated puts you in a lower social category and things. So I mean the value of standing in our society is tremendous. Yeah, I I want to I want to say this because I think this is really really relevant. So uh, again, with COVID and 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 how it's changed how we're able to access families and other medical professionals, I've had an ongoing a really nice ongoing professional relationship with a doctor in India. I'm in the northern part of India, and he's a neurologist, and he's setting up a or he, he actually has set up a neuromuscular, multidisciplinary neuromuscular clinic. And we were having a conversation just on Monday and he sent me like through WhatsApp, he had sent me some videos. And anyway, it 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 began this conversation. And what he told me is that the the outlook and the perspective is very different culturally there in India. Their society is not set up for people with disabilities. There are very few ramps. The kids, if there's any type of disability and they can't navigate the school, they're kept at home. If there's a school that the classroom is on the fourth level of a building, they won't move the classroom. So it's the responsibility, the impetus is on the families or on the child to accommodate to how everything else is. And everything culturally is set up for people without disabilities. Even getting a job, the preference is even if somebody is completely functional in a wheelchair, those that are in a wheelchair are looked down upon and considered negative. So for us here, using a standing program is helpful, but there's still a lot using a power chair, using a manual chair, there's still so much that that the individual can do and they can have a job, they can go to school, things are set up, there are accommodations the ADA, all of that. With there, those those families, those caregivers are trying to maintain standing and walking at all costs, whether it's beneficial in the long term or not, because if not, their child's not going to be able to go to school. Their child's not going to be able to get a job or go to university as they get older. So it really, it, it, it just showed me that it it is a different perspective in different places. It's not, you know, we 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 have to look at that as 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 our care, um, as our interaction has become more global. It's important to see ha- the perspective of things in other places. Wow, that's cool that you're involved with India and I'm sure all over the world. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, um, there's a dad in Uganda that he's setting up a Duchenne center and, and we've gone back and forth and I've been helping him. And he put me in touch with the, I, I didn't even know there was one, the Ugandan Physiotherapy Association. And we did the professional course that I do here and my colleague does here in the U.S. for the therapist. I did, I did it there over Zoom meetings. We had like four or five hour-long sessions and I trained them on Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So it's been really cool seeing and also seeing what's available to them. They don't have power chairs. They don't have standers. Mm -hmm. Even if they had power chairs, every most everything there are dirt and gravel roads. So it's really opened up and I feel like it's made, you know, like I, I've been less focused, uh, even less focused of this is how it needs to be done. You, you just kind of learn that like, all right, everybody has their own way to to do it. And what works for one isn't necessarily what works for another. It's it's worldwide. It's just very unique to see the difference. Definitely. I did some work in uh, St. Petersburg, Russia years ago, and their whole thing, mostly on CP, and it's totally different. It's it's actually back to where it was here in Massachusetts with the state school systems back in the 20s. And granted, I was there in the early 90s, but that's it. I mean, kids who have families, but because the families have to work and they can't take care of them put their infants into institutions. Yeah. And it's just, it's so different across the world. I went with Kyrgyzstan in 2017. We went to Moscow to do training. And that's, I mean, I was blown away because in and around the Moscow area, there are not a lot of houses, mostly apartment buildings and mm -hmm. mostly no elevators. And so the families were telling me that once the kids can't walk anymore, they pretty much stay in the apartment except for maybe twice a year where they come out for doctor's appointments. And when they do that, it takes four friends and family members to get them down the 11 flights of stairs to get out to the doctor's appointment. Then they go back up and I mean, that's where they stay. Yep. That was Eye opening. Wow, you've told us a whole lot. And um, is there anything else you want to add? No, I, I, I mean, I would say overall, keep in mind the reality of the situation. I, I feel like there's so many benefits to the standing and I can talk to parents all day about the need for standing and the benefits of standing. But again, at the end of the day, they're able to do what they're able to do. We, we might have constraints of space in the home or frequency or time or all of these things. So really try to try to take a realistic approach. I mean, if possible, if you're not able to to go out to the home as the therapist, find out from the family what their home situation's like. Is this something that that they're able to do on a regular basis? Because I've seen it in the past where the standard just really becomes a real, you know, an expensive clothes hanger or shelf or whatever and gathers a lot of dust <clears throat> and that's not what we want to see i mean we want to see people using this so so take a realistic approach with the families try to get a demo work with your dme provider and see if you can get a demo that the family can try it out first so that they can see what's involved with the process well today our guest was doug levine owner of growing places therapy and an instructor for cure to shen We've learned that standing can be a valuable part of a child's with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy therapy program. As these children's ability to stand and walk decreases, independent use of the stander provides them with weight-bearing activities, 
upright symmetrical positioning. These all assist with bone renewal density, blood pressure regulation, circulation, digestion, adequate respiration, and there's also the psychosocial benefits of being upright and eye-to-eye -eye with their peers. Again, I want to thank you, Doug, for the interview. And I want to remind people that we will have another podcast next month on funding. Thanks so much, Marianne. Thank you, Doug. Uh, Doug, thank you again. This was great. I think. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Today's podcast was brought to you by Ultimate Medical, the home of Easy Stand, Activate, and Medical Positioning.